Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am so glad that we are going to spend a chunk of time together this afternoon. We're looking up on a great weekend coming up, and I hope you've had a good week and a good day. I love the show I've got planned for you. Uh, Dr. Alex McFarland will be joining me in just a minute, and then we're going to continue our study in the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington, which I'm looking forward to as well. And then in hour two, Daryl B. Harrison will be joining me. So it's going to be a wonderful show. Um, Alex McFarland, of course, you know, is a regular guest on the program and also a great author and apologist, and he's got a tremendous heart for uh, the lost. And he's uh, one of the apologists out there in the world today that I kind of try to want to model myself after because he has this uh, tenderness, he's patient, uh, he knows how to gently correct opponents. And there's a verse that I want to talk about today with him right out of Second Timothy chapter 2. Alex, welcome to the show. Well, Bill, thank you. That's a very gracious introduction. Thanks. Well, I really do. You've got this knack for being so gentle. Um, and it says in Second Timothy 2, uh, starting in 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. <clears throat> There's a really old joke of a, a guy who is out in his yard and he's playing touch football with his kids and he twists his ankle and he calls his doctor and says, you know, Dr. Smith, I, I twisted my ankle and, uh, you know, uh, wh- what do you think I should do? And the doctor said, well, just elevate it and put some ice on it. And the guy said, well, but my cleaning lady told me to put heat on it. And the doctor says, hang on a second. He comes back and says, yeah, I just talked to my cleaning lady. She said ice. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I mean, it doesn't. Really here's the guy giving the expertise. Here's the doctor with the recommendation. Here's the doctor with the truth. And yet, people do come with their objections and their oppositions. And for the most part, they're going to sound pretty foolish. It's like you called me for my advice and counsel. Uh, I know the biblical truth. Yet, I need to be gentle and not quarrelsome and kind to everybody. Well, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all just a work in progress, aren't we? I mean, oh, yeah. I, I'll say it like this. I'm I'm a recovering knucklehead, you know, <laughs> Bill. So yeah. um, I'm just, I'm so thankful that the Lord called out to me and I found Christ. So I was a college student and, uh, you know, I, I love to read and God's allowed me to do a lot of research. And, you know, I've been involved in the the evidence for the Bible for 30 years. And, you know, yeah, it's compelling. Uh, I do believe the Bible is true. I believe Jesus is the risen Son of God. But um, I don't know, when I meet skeptics or atheists or people struggling through doubts, um, I, I try to be, you know, patient and show empathy because, you know, that that was me at one time. I was just a struggling college student. And you know, it's. I feel just such gratitude to the Lord that the Spirit of the Lord was able to pierce through my heart and, and reach me. So, I don't know, I try to be patient because I was just the struggler one time myself, Bill. Mm-hmm. 
But in verse 23, Alex, it says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. doesn't seem that there's a, a time in, in my life right now in what's going on in the world that that is more relevant than ever before. Yeah, yeah. I um, right now am counseling with a church that split over alcohol. Uh, and I, I want to be very clear that, you know, I'm the Bible says drunkenness is a sin. And uh, this particular pastor decided that he wanted every one of his members, I mean, this is like a 500-member church, to sign a card saying that they wouldn't drink, which I happen to believe that's very legalistic. And uh, I'm not saying that people should drink. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. But let's just be clear that, um, you know, Jesus did turn water to wine. It wasn't mere grape juice. It was wine. Uh, and, and you know, I, I don't drink. I mean, I don't have an interest in pursuing that. But here's my point. In this day and age, um, first of all, we're, we can't be the Holy Spirit for everybody else. You know, um, legalism generally breeds rebellion. And we've got so much on the table now from Marxism and critical race theory, things that jeopardize our religious freedom. We've got, you know, Islam and moral issues. I, I really think from the pulpit to try to alienate half your church and draw this hard shell line about alcohol, that's probably just not a wise use of pulpit time here in 2021. Is that an important subject? Sure. Should we strive for holiness and godliness? Of course. But there's so, I mean, we're talking about whether or not our country's even going to survive. And I, I think that um, now is not the time to major on the minors. Mm-hmm. That's just one example. But um, style of music, I mean, I've, I know churches that have split over, you know, contemporary versus traditional music. Again, we, we all have our preferences, but, you know, if the words are godly and it's Christ-honoring music, just be, be thankful that we have a place to worship and the, the legality to do it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's so true. But when we are um, confronting people, and I know you have this incredible gentleness— I think what really turns people off is when we sound judgmental, especially when you're uh, sharing with someone who doesn't know the power of the gospel, doesn't know the Lord. Um, And when we speak with the knowledge we have of the truth, when we come across like, you have to understand, this is absolutely true. You know, sometimes a person can hear that and go, boy, you're being being so self-righteous. How do we blend the power of the truth of the gospel, which is obviously the work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life, but also to have this gentle spirit that says, I'm so happy to be in this discussion with you. I want to be continuing this talk, you know, because people, I think, look for ways in which they can discredit you. Yeah. Um, I, I had a professor and a mentor, uh, Norm Geisler, and he's in heaven now, but Dr. Geisler, he was a great apologist and, uh, you know, he could be a pretty pretty forceful guy himself sometimes, but Dr. Geisler said we, we always need to try for this posture uh, where we're, we're showing people, hey, it's not me versus you, but it's us together on a journey for the truth. And on the one hand, look, I, I know 
that we're supposed to be a witness and we're supposed to, you know, rescue the perishing as the Fanny Crosby song says. But here's the thing. We have to give people the space to process their questions. And I have found many a person that sinned kind of vehemently against the gospel, but you, you just say, you know, wow, I, let, let me make sure I understand where you're coming from. Okay, that's a good question. Let's let's try to, how about we have coffee and we'll go over that together. Now, now let me just say this, Bill. The, the time to debate a, a seeker is not in front of all of his friends. Mm. And, and, I, and I don't mean like a debate at a university where you're on a stage and it's a, a you know, structured debate. I, I've done a lot of that. But I mean, if it's somebody and they've got a question or some issue, you don't want to um, sort of shut them down in front of all their friends because they'll only dig their heels in all the more harshly. But give people space for the seeds of truth to germinate. And I've often said to people, I say, hey, look, uh, let's talk about it. Let, let's get coffee or let's do breakfast next week. And Gary Habermas, Bill, is a great, incredible defender of the faith. And he's told me about people that atheists that he's led to the Lord, but maybe they they met privately in a safe, non-threatening environment, and he patiently talked for years sometimes, and people begin to come to the Lord. Because, see, here's the thing. We never know why somebody is holding God at arm's length. They say, well, you know, what about archaeology or what about Bible contradictions? Well, that may be the issue, or there may be something else that is an emotional issue, but they've propped it up with a question. So be willing to patiently walk with people and invest time. And of course, we're praying and we're asking the Holy Spirit to do all the work, but um, I don't know. I, I think when people show that you really care— that you do know your stuff, and you're willing to patiently, you know, I, and I've told people, and I really mean it, I will journey along with you as long as it takes. If, you, if you're seriously looking for an answer to that question, let's let's go on this journey together and let's see what we find. And very often people are are touched by that. I love what you just said, Alex. Never, you, you may never know why you are keeping God at arm's length. That's really a great line. Well, you know, people, uh, my wife is a nurse, and when people go to the doctor, there's the presenting issue, and then very often there's the real problem that may be different. Somebody presents with, you know, a, a backache, and what the problem is is something different. When people present with a question, that may or may not be the real issue. Um, well, if God is good, why did he create evil? That's a question we hear a lot. Well, first of all, God didn't really create evil because God is perfectly righteous. But oftentimes the uh, vehement objection is born out of pain. You know, um, a loved one got sick. We prayed and they passed away anyway. Well, that there's pain in that, and there's there's emotional healing people need, and very often um, people have a question, but just know that that may or may not be the real issue. 
Mm. And so uh, it takes a lot of prayer. But I, I would say this, Bill, being a witness for Christ is the greatest adventure. Because for one thing, when somebody throws a question out there that stops you dead in your tracks, well, that's going to force you to go back and read the Bible and pray and think, maybe read Get a get a Josh McDowell book and read it, or or you know Lee Strobel or one of mine, and uh, fielding those questions that'll keep you on your toes and it'll keep you sharp, and and I think it'll also give maybe a little bit of empathy that you know we're we're in a world full of fellow strugglers, and we who have found the oasis of of life, the water of life. Um, we're not to be haughty or arrogant because it's only by the grace of God that we found the pathway to Jesus. And so patiently, compassionately, we, we're trying to help others find that pathway too. Mm-hmm. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. I'm asking him today about Second Timothy 2 and 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. It's the second half of this verse that's a whopper that I can't wait to talk to Alex about when we come back. back with Dr. Alex McFarland. Go to alexmcfarland.com to learn more about Alex and his books and his blogs and all the good work he does. We're talking today about 2 Timothy 2. It's a passage that I love, and I memorized it. And it starts in verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everybody, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is one of the most sobering verses in Scripture, Alex. Yeah, it, it really is, Bill. And I'm, I'm impressed that you've memorized that. Uh, good for you, man. That's awesome. Oh, thanks. Uh you know, there's a lot in there that I think the modern world might uh, find problematic. You know, there in uh, verse uh, 25, for one thing, God granting repentance to people that we need to repent. But look at verse 26, escaping the trap of the devil. And, you know, it's um word very often translated snare mm-hmm. or strategy. I mean, or wile, you know, like the the wiles of a of an evil person. So let me just say, the devil is real. Uh, we are victorious over Satan if we're in Jesus Christ, but, but Satan is real, his snares. And the, the word is really the word for, for strategy or stratagem. Satan has a strategy to try to lure people away from Christ. And um, Bill, have you ever had this question? Sometimes people will ask, can the devil read our thoughts? Have you ever had anybody ask that question? I have, yes. Yeah. As I understand Scripture, 
uh, I don't think the devil can read our mind. Only the Holy Spirit is omniscient and can really know our thoughts. But think about this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. You know, Hebrews 11 is the Faith Hall of Fame. There are all these wonderful, faithful people. And kind of the implication of Hebrews 11 is, look, they, they only had a fraction of the revelation that you and I have, and yet they were faithful. How much more so could we be? Because we are privy to much more. You know, we, we know the tomb is empty. We, we've got the book of Revelation. We know that we're victorious in Christ. If those Hebrews 11 people could be so faithful with only a fraction of the knowledge we have, how much more so we. But anyway, Hebrews 12 begins, and it says, Therefore, seeing we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. Now back to the question of can Satan read our thoughts? No, he can't. But I think he's a very keen observer. And the besetting sin, the things that would be our Achilles heel, the devil knows. That's why Second Timothy 2.26 talks about um, avoiding the snares or the strategies of the devil. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's somebody who's, who's prideful. And maybe it's somebody who's got, you know, kind of a, a pride issue or fear. Or maybe somebody's got unforgiveness or they're prone to substance abuse or whatever. Um, Satan has a snare that he's going to use to try and entangle you. And maybe, I mean, I don't want to be morbid, but maybe Satan and his demons have observed us since childhood even. And they know where we're vulnerable spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, behaviorally. And that's why, you know, we need to come to Christ, stay with Jesus, build our lives, get strong in Christ. And as Second Timothy 2 and other passages say, we will overcome the wiles of Satan. Another great scripture on this topic is First uh, Peter 5. You know, Satan stalks about like a roaring lion, and we're to overcome him through Jesus. And I also love First John 5.19, which is we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Yeah. A lot of people don't believe in Satan, but he's real, isn't he? Mm, yeah, very much so, yeah. And one, yeah. Of the, one of the scariest things in the way this chapter ends in Second Timothy 2 is that the prayer is that people will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil that has yeah. taken them captive to do his will. It sounds like, you know, you have people that say, well, I'm not really a a Christian or a, you know, a person that is in favor of, of a life with God, but I'm also, I'm not, in, I'm not in Satan's camp. Come on. I'm a good guy. Well, yeah. I mean, we tell ourselves that, but Jesus said, you know, if we're not for him, conversely, we're against him. Right. And, and Jesus, it's interesting, the wording that Jesus says in the gospels, he says, he who does not gather with me scatters. It's interesting, you know, if you've seen something, let's say you've got, you know, a handful of, um, I don't know, seed or something, and you throw it and the wind just blows it away, and it would be impossible to find it again. Uh, or you maybe think of a glass that is dropped on the floor and the pieces shatter in a million directions. Um, you know, if we're not with Christ, Jesus said, 
he who does not gather with me scatters, um, we we might tell ourselves, look, I've got it going on. I'm, you know, I'm competent. I've got life. I've I've got this. But without Christ, we really don't. And maybe maybe we're deceived. Um, I had a lady call me earlier today, uh, Bill, on a, on a different program, and she said that she they put her son through college, they they put him into grad school, but now he's woke, and he once professed Christ, but now he's an agnostic, and he doesn't like America, and America's evil, and um, mom and dad are ignorant, and I said, yeah, but who pays the bills and who's got the money? And she said, well, we do. Um, and I said, well, you, you're not too ignorant. You've made money. And uh, it's funny, uh, hmm. Junior is now woke, but yet he's still relying on you guys to pay the bills. And my point being that the arrogance or the hubris of secular education, so many professors and many impressionable students, they think, well, you know, morally – I'll become a relativist, and there is no truth. I make my own truth. And, you know, theologically, who needs God? Because we've got – I mean, we're we're sophisticated. We have mobile devices and the Internet and things. Uh, we – in the Western world of 2021, I think we, we're so posh and pampered that we forget that, you know, for six millennia, the human race plowed with oxen. And yeah, in the last hundred years, you know, one sixtieth of human history, one penny out of sixty. In the last hundred years, we've invented a few impressive gadgets, but that doesn't mean there's not a Creator God and a moral code we've broken and a risen Savior that we so desperately need. Mm-hmm. Alex, uh, I love looking at Scripture with you. I love uh, hearing your perspectives on things, and thanks again for always modeling that gentle, kind spirit. I think I get uh, remarks on our website about how kind and considerate you are. So I just want to pass that on. That That's very affirming, and I think it gives people a chance to see how somebody handles the Word of God and does it in a very uh, kind way, uh, loving, um, wow. gentle, able to teach, um, correcting his opponents with gentleness, like it says in Second Timothy 2. Oh. To God be the glory. To God. Um, hey, we've got got a conference in October, October 15 through 17, uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I know that's a ways away, but uh, a thousand restaurants are there, a lot of hotels. Nice. We'll have Frank Turek, more than a dozen apologetic speakers, all this kind of stuff you and I talk about every other week. Yeah. We're, we've got a three-day conference. Go to truthforanewgeneration.com. Truthforanewgeneration.com. Alex, thanks so much for doing the show. Bless you, Bill. Thanks. Yeah, Dr. Alex McFarlane, once again, has been my guest. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to go back into the study of the book of John. I think we're in 17 already with Dr. Greg Heddington. That's all coming up next. Be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? 
You know, I love to study God's Word, and we're back at it today with Dr. Greg Headington. We are continuing our study in the book of John, and we're all the way to uh, John 17, but it makes me suspicious. I feel like we've missed something, but I'll check in with Greg and find out if that is true at all. Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Yes, uh, we did not. I did not give chapters 15 and 16, so if you're taking notes, you did not miss anything. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I'll have to take you to task on 15 and 16 at some point. All right. Well, we're starting uh, chapter 17 today, and it's entitled The Lord's Prayer. Now, what we typically call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father Prayer is found in Matthew 6, verse 9, and Luke 11, verse 2. However, those passages are the prayers Jesus gave to his apostles when they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. What we call the high priestly prayer in John 17 is what we can more accurately call the Lord's Prayer because it focuses on several of the Lord's prayers regarding relationships that provide a picture of how God expects his people to live. Now, the setting for chapter 17 is just hours before the crucifixion, and chapters 13 to 17 record the final instructions Jesus gives to the apostles before his death. These chapters have been a golden repository of truth, which Christ followers have read for guidance and blessing for 2,000 years. And what a privilege to listen in as we read what one member of the Trinity says to another in prayer about what it's like to live in the world just before giving up his life to redeem sinners. This is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. Now, it's broken up into three distinct parts, so let's look at the first part. If you're taking notes, Roman number one, Jesus prays about the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's the first five verses. Jesus begins by addressing his Father. Now, whereas the Jews thought God could only be approached through the atonement that came from sacrificing animals, Jesus relates to his Father as Father who's loving and caring. In Jewish history, there was no doubt that God loved his people through the ages, but approachability, was a, that's a long word, was another matter. The pattern had been fixed for centuries like this. God appeared to the priest who were confined to a certain place and time. But then earth became a visited planet as God moved among his people in the person of his son, Jesus. So now there is a family relationship between God the Father and his children, exemplified by their relationship with the Son. So Jesus prays, quote, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As the great British preacher and author G. Campbell Morgan wrote, the deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of mankind, but the glory of God, and then the saving of mankind, because saving them is for the glory of God. What does Jesus mean by glorify? Well, to glorify means to bring honor for the excellence of God's character, to show the world his deity through Jesus, which had been hidden until then. It's like, and when I use the words it's like, it reminds me of the writings of C.S. Lewis, who often use the phrase it's like before he gives an example to clarify what he's just been trying to explain. So regarding the hiddenness of the deity of Jesus, it's like long, cloudy, gloomy days in winter, which are suddenly interrupted by the sun breaking through from behind the clouds, and the landscape is illuminated in radiant, sunny glory. Now, we've all experienced that, and that is the sense in which Jesus is asking his Father 
to finally glorify him to his people. Now, one of my favorite verses is in the first chapter of Colossians, when St. Paul talks about the mystery to humankind that had been hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed because of the crucifixion. And what is that mystery? Colossians 1:27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which means God himself, in the person of Jesus, is directly and personally present in the lives of his people now, and he assures us of a future life with him forever when he returns. I mean, there's no better news than that anywhere. And, of course, Jesus is only a few hours away from his earthly death and the glory of God's illumination when he breaks through past death and becomes visible again to the world. Remember back in the first chapter of John, which says, The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. Well, what was that glory like? John gives the answer, quote, it was full of grace and truth. Well, even though they had been hidden for a long time, God's reality of grace and truth suddenly become visible at the crucifixion. But we're all born blind to the truth when we come into this world until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we understand what exactly happened on the cross. Well, what did happen on the cross? Excellent question. How would you answer that question? Many things revealed at the cross, and here's just four. Number one, we are now able to have a personal relationship with the Father through the Son. Number two, that relationship helps us to live life to the fullest because the Holy Spirit is in us. Number three, as Jesus says in verse three, Father, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So, in other words, eternal life begins now. And number four, the cross becomes a bridge. It's like, and there's that expression, it's like a bridge built over a deep valley. The valley represents the gulf between us and God because of our sin. Jesus acts like that bridge as he lays down over the valley of sin and substitutes himself in death to forgive our sin, which is separated from God. And we are now able to walk across that bridge and receive his forgiveness. Well, why do we sin? We don't need to look at all the reasons we choose to sin, but I like the explanation given by Oswald Chambers, that brilliant Christian author who said this, The root of all sin is our suspicion that God is not good. Mm-hmm. Let me repeat this. The root of all sin is our suspicion that God is not good. So if we believe God is not good, then we certainly will not trust in him. But when we realize that Jesus proved his love for us on the cross, then our minds and our hearts can make the big switch. We realize that he loved us enough to make the ultimate sacrifice, his life for ours. And then because of his love, that tortuous instrument of death, the cross, becomes a symbol not of execution, but primarily a symbol of God's love and glory. So it can be displayed as a piece of jewelry, which symbolizes his love that some people wear around a neck or a cross placed on the wall of our home. Now, on one hand, such a sacrifice of love is difficult to imagine. But on the other hand, this is not some nebulous idea or principle or theory about what love is. The cross is not even an example of love. The cross is love itself. Let me repeat. The cross is love itself, not a symbol. The cross is the very definition of God's love for us. 
As you've heard me say before, the only way we are certain that someone truly believes what they say they believe is if we do what? Watch their feet. Watch what they do. And the love Jesus has for us was proven to not be just words. He demonstrated it on the cross. Roman numeral two. Jesus prays for the 11 apostles and for those who believed in him. And that's verses 6 to 19. In verse 9, Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, Father. Now, we know from John 3:16 that Jesus arrived on earth for the sake of the world, but his focus at the end of his life is for the 11 who had been with him for three and a half years and, and not just the 11, but all the people that believe in him whom, quote, Father, you have given to me. And if we're believers, that's us. This verse once again emphasizes the teaching of Scripture concerning God's election of people to believe, and Scripture also speaks of our free will to believe. So Scripture teaches both election and free will. (laughs) The fact that we cannot harmonize these two seemingly contradictory truths should not trouble us because we take them by faith, from the one who is most faithful to us. Now the prayer of Jesus, in verses 6 to 19, for the 11 and all who have believed in him, and this can be divided into three sections. So the first section is, Roman number 3, Jesus prays for his followers' protection. In verse 12, Jesus tells his father that he has guarded those whom the father gave him, except for Judas, whom Jesus says was destined to betray him so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them, in other words, protect them, in your name that they may be one as we are one. Now, we'll talk about oneness and unity a little later, but notice that Jesus addresses God as Holy Father. That is a unique term used only here in the New Testament. As someone has said, that title, Holy Father, suggests both remoteness and nearness, because God is both awe-inspiring and loving. Okay, the second section of Jesus' prayer for believers is Roman number four. Jesus prays regarding the hatred of people toward the truth. Jesus twice mentions the same exact words in verses 14 and 16 regarding the unbelieving world's hostility toward believers. It's true that we believers are not spiritually of this world, because believers will one day Go to our true home. We've talked a lot about the hatred of the world toward believers, so let's let's look at it a little bit differently today. My favorite writer of children's stories is Hans Christian Andersen from Denmark, and it was a thrill when Carrie and I visited Copenhagen, the capital, a few years ago and saw his home and took the Hans Christian Andersen tour. One of the stories he wrote in 1843 was called The Ugly Duckling. It goes like this. There once was an ugly duckling who spent the first years of its life in duckland. Sadly, the other ducks thought of this duck as ugly because of its appearance and behavior. Therefore, throughout its years in duckland, it was treated badly by the other ducks who shunned it and made its life miserable in the pond which was their environment. But one day, the ugly duckling had the startling realization that in fact, It was not a duck at all, but a swan. Since swans are not welcome in duckland, it decided to flap its wings and suddenly flies away and makes its home among a flock of other swans who become its loving family. Happy ending. 
As he closes the story, Hans Christian Andersen writes this. Listen to this. Before it knew how all this happened, it found itself in a great garden where the trees smelled sweet and bent their long green branches down to the channel that wound past it. Oh, here it was so beautiful, such a gladness of spring. Well, friends, eventually believers will go to the land where others who also are believers will gather together in the ultimate joy. But for now, in this existence, it is clear from our Lord's Prayer that we must learn to live and love others in this difficult and painful duckland of this world. And Bill, that leads us to the third section of Jesus' Prayer for Believers. I like what I like where we're going. This is a fantastic study. It's nice to be uh, back with Dr. Greg Headington. We're going to take a short break when we, when we return. I hope you have got your Bibles open to John chapter 17. That's where we're at in the text. We'll be right back. studying the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington. We are in chapter 17, and there are 26 verses in chapter 17. One of the most remarkable, amazing, outstanding prayers in all of Scripture is in John 17. If you've missed any of this, you're going to want to hit rewind. You can always head over to MyFaithRadio.com and check the show page, Afternoons with Bill, and make sure you hear this from the beginning. Greg, let's pick up where we left off. Thanks, Bill. By the way, I like that guitar. Was that somebody in your studio playing that? Uh, I think it was me. Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> it, it sounded, it had kind of a Bill Arnoldy style. Yeah, so. that little twang. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, I thank you. It. Thank you so much. Okay, well, the third section of Jesus' prayer for believers is Roman numeral 5. Jesus prays for the future church to be unified. If we had any doubts that this prayer applies to believers today, it is erased by verse 20. The heart of the final paragraph of the chapter focuses on unity, which is the ultimate demonstration of God's work through us in the world. Now, I hear some of you out there saying, wait a minute, the word church, which in Greek is ecclesia, if you want to know a little Greek today, ecclesia, it does not appear in this chapter because the church has not yet come into existence. But we know that church simply means those who are part of the body of believers. It's not a building. And sometimes we get that confused. And Jesus is praying in the presence of the people who will make up the nucleus of this new body, which is the most powerful human force on this planet, to fulfill the plan of God. So again, the church. On Sunday mornings, it's the church gathered. The rest of the week, it's the church scattered. Hmm. But the church is made up of believers. We see here that oneness within the body of Christ is patterned after the oneness of the Father and the Son. Incredibly, God joins our spirits through the Holy Spirit because Jesus' blood is thicker than water and even thicker than human bonds. Jesus prays, quote, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, let me, let me state this reality in a simple three-part sentence. You belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. We belong to each other. That's it. Now, prophetically, Jesus looks to the future in verse 20 
And this is the pivotal point which separates those words spoken only to the 11 apostles from words spoken now to the universal church. Now hold that thought for a minute. Again, when we hear the word church, it simply means Christ followers gathered wherever they are. Perhaps there's no verse in all of Scripture which has been more frequently quoted to support church unity than John 17, verse 21. But note that the emphasis of this prayer focuses on spiritual unity and not organizational unity. And by that, what I mean is, did you know there are over 33,000 different fellowships and denominations in the world? But no matter which one we claim is our own, we all belong to the Lord and to each other. And to understand the unity of the church, we must do our best to understand the unity between the Son and the Father that we've just talked about. So here it is in verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. Again, that's the future. That's us. For, for those who will believe in me through their word, but they may all, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that, again, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, what has Jesus just told us? He says we as the church are to be one, we are to be unified. And I'm not talking about different denominations, but rather the universal church. And that expression refers to every believer everywhere in the world. We know we've already been commanded to love one another back in chapter 13, and we may not always like certain people, but we as believers are a family, and our family members look and act and live differently than we do. And we know that from our own family, but when you travel around the world, the people in uh, Africa don't look like the people in China who are really quite different from the people in Vietnam. Everywhere, we're just different. And it's always easy to love someone in theory, right? Mm Mm-hmm. For example, I have had several theoretical children in my life. In my mind, that is. But in fact, it was not the calling from the Lord for my wife and me to have children. But I have to admit, I did have an arranged marriage. Arranged by the Lord. Let's be clear about that. (laughs) (laughs) To an extraordinary woman. Some of you have heard her before. An extraordinary woman with whom I could not possibly be any happier, even as I had to wait a long time in my life. But it's easy to love someone or children or anyone in theory. Kind of reminds me of that comic strip Peanuts when Lucy, who's the perpetual antagonist of Charlie Brown, says one day, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. But we know love is not an idea. Love is not a theory. Love is not feelings. Love is behavior. My wife and I talk to a Chinese graduate student every week on Zoom who lives in Beijing, never been here, and hopes to visit America one day, and she likes to practice conversational English, so she'll be able to hopefully speak a little English when she's able to visit one day. Now, for a year, I've been praying and trying to gently suggest that she visit a church in Beijing. Finally, praise the Lord, it just happened last week, A believer, whom I know, took her to a Chinese church. And so she told me this on Zoom, and I asked her, well, what did you think? She said, well, I understood some of the things the man said in his lecture, 
But what I liked best was everyone was so nice to me. I said, so what do you think? She said, I think I'll be back. Friends, we're called to bring others to the truth of Jesus by reaching out in love. And real love is what Jesus is all about. Roman numeral six. God's list of seven deadly sins. From whom does division originate? Well, we know that every disruption in God's world originates with Satan. Now, have you heard of the seven deadly sins? Yes. Usually, we think of, of we've seen movies. Usually, we think of that list of sins, which Pope Gregory, yes, there is a pope named after me, <laughs> that, that Pope Gregory in the 6th century determined were the worst sins, also known, if you're Catholic, as the cardinal sins. Can you name them? Well, I'm not going to quiz you on, on air, but here they are. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. We also have a list in Scripture which begins with these words, quote, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And then the seven behaviors are listed. Now, followers of Christ can combat those seven deadly sins as we grow and mature in faith and develop what's called sanctification, which just simply means to become more like Christ through thought and words and behavior And we become sanctified. What does that mean? To be sanctified means to be set apart for God's use and for his plan. Now, this list of sins hated by God that I'm going to read are representative sins and not an exhaustive list. Even so, in Hebrew numerology, the last item in a list is either the best or the worst in the list, depending on the list, whether it's good or bad. And in this case... The last sin mentioned is the most hated by God. Now, when we read this list, we can understand why God hates the first six, but it might be easy to overlook the seventh item. And so the author pulls a big surprise on the reader when the seventh is mentioned. Are you ready? Okay. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Let's look at Proverbs six sixteen to 19 and discover the sins most abhorrent to God. Number one. Haughty eyes. In other words, one who's full of pride. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Number five, feet that quickly run to evil. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. And now, here we are, number seven. The sin that is most hateful to God, according to Proverbs 6, one who sows discord among the brethren. In other words, one who divides believers by whatever means they choose. Could be gossip, criticism, hatred, rumor, skepticism, distrust, perhaps competition, and so on. The Hebrew tense used in this case does not mean the sin is a one-time occurrence. But rather, the person continues in the scripture, the the uh, Hebrew verbal um, tense continues to mean whatever the person does, continues to do to divide among the brethren, to cause division. All sin misses the mark in godly behavior. But sowing discord among believers is a very serious affront to God. After all, Psalm 133, verse 1 says, 
how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. If you just happen to want to speak a little Hebrew today. It's a song I learned. I learned most of my verses by singing them. So in conclusion, we all are sinners, but we know others will not know the love Jesus has for each person if we do not have love toward others. That's why we do not let disagreements over issues, especially these days politics, tear us away from loving others as Jesus told us. In the great commandments, and the two great commandments we should all know, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors as yourself. Wow. Greg, awesome study. I'm loving this. You know that. And this has been a wonderful uh, time studying God's Word. Thank you so much for, uh, for what you've done today. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Greg Hennington has been my guest. We've been studying the book of John. Once this is completed, we'll put it all together. Um, on the web. So we'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.